Welcome to the Walking Lessons Podcast. Today's episode, Progress, Not Perfection. And now, here's Nate Larkin. All right, we, we, uh, this week is going to be a continuation of last week. We're going to go on a little bit further. We're going to talk about, if you'll recall, if you were here last week, um, we're getting right-sized in this process of recovery. The text that we worked from is Romans chapter 12, verse 3, where Paul, sa- uh, Paul says this, for, through the, uh, for I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. What we want to do is we want to uh, uh, find a sane, objectively true self-concept. It's all about reframing life. Uh, Allie and I went yesterday to see the movie Birdman downtown in Franklin. If you follow Allie on Facebook, you probably know that. Uh, I I was uh, excited to see the film. I'd I'd heard about uh, the film. Basically, the story is Michael Keaton plays an aging movie actor who, when he was young, was very popular, played a superhero, Birdman. His marriage fell apart after the third movie, and uh, he refused to sign up for the next sequel. And so now he's he's left California, he's divorced, he's living in New York, and he's trying to put on a very serious play to prove that he's a real actor. And he's emotionally disturbed, and there's voices in his head, and things kind of go crazy. It's It's a film by actors, for actors. It's mostly one big, long inside joke, right? So um, they call it a black comedy. Allie hated it. Yeah, yeah, and I really didn't understand most of it, and it kind of grew on me. They served beer at the Franklin Theater. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Allie, Allie was drinking water, but this, yeah, this movie is two beers long, and, and the second half was better than the first. <laughs> so in the second half of the movie, I started noticing something. I started noticing the direction, the editing, and the cinema, cinematography. It is phenomenal, some of these shots. If, if you watch film and video, and you can't get away from it anymore, I mean, it's, it's always there, you may have noticed that that in recent years, certainly since MTV, uh, the shot length in anything has grown progressively shorter. So in videos, the average shot is less than two seconds long. This has had its effect in feature films. So since the 30s, the average length of a shot has gone from 11 seconds down to roughly four seconds. And, and I think uh, you know, directors do that to keep our attention. So we're because we're so easily bored, always switching perspectives, right? Well, this film does something. It goes so against that tide. There are there are shots in this film that are six and seven minutes long. So Michael, there'll be a scene in Michael Keaton's dressing room, a very intense scene, and then a shot with one camera, and then the camera will follow him out the door, no cut down the hallway in this film you spend half your time going down hallways and up and down stairs basically right sometimes past a room where somebody unaccountably is playing the drums I never did get that but um, 
and then into another room where there will be another scene. I just marveled at that, and then it, it, re, it re-emphasized to me, it reawakened in me this understanding that it's the perspective of the viewer that, 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 that so colors and influences our experience. It's the way I frame what I see. It's point of view, it's perspective, it's focus. What changed for me in recovery was that. Recovery reframed my life so that I saw it from a different angle. It was amazing to me how the Bible changed. Well, the Bible didn't change. My perspective on it changed. My view of you depends to a great degree on where I am and my view of myself. My view of God depends to a very great degree on my view of myself. My view of the gospel depends on where I'm standing, who I think I am. And what recovery did for me and continues to do for me is challenge my perspective to get me in a right place. So as we talked about this uh, last week, I mentioned to you that a common characteristic of we addicts is that we kind of have this double thing going. We're the, we're the, 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 the egomaniac with the inferiority complex. Remember that phrase? We think very highly of ourselves and at the same time, very little of ourselves. What the Bible encourages us to do is find this right place in the middle. So I do know, I became slowly conscious of the fact early in recovery that there was a big part of me that really thought I was God. If, as you know, the medieval theologians said, pride is the, the king of all the deadly sins, the one from, all, uh, from which all the others proceed, okay? Then, and if pride is this, the ambition to be God, then I have pride in spades. And it's still there. I can't talk about it in the past tense. At least I'm aware of it now. So I do want to be omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, all those things that God is. And, and it came out in strange ways. Allie and I, if we're driving down the interstate, and Allie would say, that's your exit coming up. I would get mad because she was implying that I did not know. Yeah, 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 that's right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, the worst thing, yeah, if she would say, wasn't that your exit? You know, that was worse. Right, yeah, yeah, right. I, I thought I was omnipotent, so I really believed I could tell other cars where to go. Right? And because I thought I was omnipresent, I never accounted for travel time, which is why we were chronically late in the first place, right? Now, um, there is this flip side to our pride. And the flip side of it is self-hatred. You see, if I truly believe that I'm God, that I'm perfect, that I'm larger than life, then any failure is very, very threatening. I can't face failure. I've got to, I've got to deal with it very quickly. Uh, I've got to sweep it under the rug if I can. 
just hide it from myself and others. And I'll do that by employing one of those denial strategies that we talked about a couple weeks ago. And I've got a whole arsenal of denial strategies. If I can't do that, then I can, um, then what I will do is just punish myself. Now, all of us carry the uh, internalized voice of the critical parent. Uh, I don't know what yours sounds like. Mine sounds a little bit like Gomer Pyle. Just, for shame, for shame, for shame. <laughs> right? So I make a mistake, and here comes this shaming voice that says, and here's what makes it worse. I, I happen to be the type of addict that the alcoholics would call a periodic drunk. Have you ever heard of a periodic? See, as opposed to what you'd call a low bottom drunk, somebody who just, I mean, they're going to drink from the moment they get up to the moment they go to bed, and they're going to drink every day. I had the capacity in my acting out to hold my breath for a few days at a time. Occasionally, if I'd had some sort of spiritual experience or if I'd found some magic incantation, some ritual to follow, I might even be able to stay away from my behavior for two or three weeks. Which reinforced the delusion that I could actually control it. So obviously I don't need help. I can do this. And then when I'd slip, now comes that voice of the critical parent, this condemning. And we, it might be it might be the devil. I don't think we always need to blame it on the devil. I think we're all capable of manufacturing that voice ourselves. But I'll tell you what, that voice is very real. And what it says is, there's no excuse for that. Can't believe you did that. You didn't have to do that. It's that for shame, for shame, for shame. And what does shame do? It hides. It runs. It covers up. And so as we talked about last week, I made the, the mistake so common in Christian circles of trying to shame my way out of shame-driven behavior. I love, uh, one of my good friends has a, has a saying, uh, Mike Malloy says, it's really not possible to beat yourself up into a better place. Um, I'll tell you what, I sure tried it. So I come into, uh, into recovery, and I have these perfectionistic ambitions and expectations of myself. I come into recovery certain that I finally found the right classroom where the, where the, where the correct information is, and I'm a good student, and I'm going to be the star pupil. I'm going to graduate in just a couple of weeks and will not have to come back, right? I'm going to get my diploma. Uh, and I'm going to show everybody how this is done. And I, you know, I absorb the literature, I study the lit literature, I listen carefully. I cruise through those first few weeks of early recovery, one commonly called the pink cloud, where the obsession is magically lifted. And, and, and it's, you know, it's the periodic, you know, it's, it's that period of abstinence that feels like sobriety that tells me, at last, you know, we're through all the rapids, no more white water, it's clear sailing from here on out, and yes, you know, I am as good as I thought I was, right? 
you know, I felt sorry for the poor guys who obviously had been coming to this meeting for, some of them, for years. You know. And then, boom, here it comes. A failure. And I, and I do believe relapse is not inevitable. There are some people who get it and get it quickly and never have to relapse. For most of us, relapse is part of the education. It's a necessary corrective. We have to collide with reality until we're in, uh, before we're able to accept it. Now, here is the amazing thing. For the first time when I was in recovery, I met a non-shaming response to my failure. My own internal response was shaming, which is why I didn't tell anybody about my first slip for quite a while. Not until I'd gotten my feet back out from under me, uh, back under me, not until I could explain it, until I could assure myself and everybody else that I was past it, that that was just a one-off, you know, it'll never happen again, that thing. If you've ever gone to a 12-step meeting, they read the steps at every meeting. And at the end of the steps, there's this, there's this other section in the big book that always gets read. And it goes something like this. Most of us exclaimed, what an order. I can't go through with it. Do not be discouraged. No one among us can claim anything like perfect adherence to these steps. We are not saints. The point is, we are willing to grow along spiritual lines. Principles that we have set down are guides to progress. We claim spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. Progress rather than perfection. I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, Richard Linklater is the, uh, is the director. And, and it's a film that was shot over the course of 12 years with the same cast. The new film, Boyhood. So the, the, uh, the central character is a boy named Mason who's six when, he, when the film opens. And he's got an eight-year-old sister named Samantha. His mom is played by Patricia Arquette, his biological dad is played by Ethan Hawke. And you see everybody grow older as the kids grow up. And I'll tell you what, it took through, me through so many scenes from my own childhood and reminded me of scenes, things that I put my kids through, you know. Very, very intense. But it has brought home to me again the fact that my childhood has never gone away. I am 58 years old, which sounds inconceivable, inconceivable. But I'm also 57 and 56 and 55 and 15 and 13 and 12 and 6 and 4 and 3. And all those memories are there. And that part of me needs to be nurtured and cared for. It's that part of me, really. I have come to understand that it's the younger part of me that tends to be the most rebellious and the most stupid and the most self-destructive. And that part of me responds to nurture. That part of me needs to be honored. We are made, the Bible says, a little lower than the angels. Yeah, we're not God. We're not crap. You have value. I have value. We need to honor what God has given us, steward it, 
And that is a big part of what recovery is about. Um, One of the things that I learned to do in 12-step recovery is some, uh, a, a, a discipline that I've carried on and conveyed to my brothers in the Samson Society, and it's kind of part of Samson life, is I learned to make the daily phone call. You ever do this to your kid when, you, when your kid is out and uh, you know, on his own and starting to get a little independent or they're going to a party, but you just, just call me, call me. You want the kid to stay in touch, right? It's a very humbling thing to make the phone call. I did not want to make the daily phone call. The phone call in itself is a spiritual exercise. It's a statement that I need to check in with somebody else. I'm not uh, capable of living my life uh, only by my own lights. I've got to let somebody else know what's going on. It's a hard thing to make the phone call, which is why the alcoholics talk quite a bit about the 500-pound phone. Everybody has trouble with the 500-pound phone. But that phone call, again, it's a, it's a humbling thing. It's a statement that I am a child. I'm a child of God. Uh, but I am not an only child. I would like to be an only child, frankly, uh, because I don't like sharing with you people, right? <laughs> or with anybody else. But I'm not an only child. Um, God has this insane commitment to reconstituting his family. And uh, we're meant to be in relationship with each other, and he meets us in those relationships. So, so when I call a guy who's as messed up as I am, and I call him with a commitment to tell him the truth, Jesus answers the phone. That's what happens. So i got to make the phone call. And here's, what, here's the instruction that was given to me. And the way we do it in the Samson Society, I'll let you in on how we do things. I have five guys who call me every day. And I have a guy who I call most every day. Well, no, that's not even true. I'm still struggling with the phone call. I'm better at taking the phone call than making the phone call. But I know, I saw a quote, I saw a quote the other day from, uh, oh, shoot, what's his name? You'd know his name if I said it. Uh, <laughs> he said, he said uh, I'm not a teacher. I am merely a fellow traveler. I am pointing the way ahead ahead of me as well as you, right? George Bernard Shaw. No, this is true, and I have gone through seasons of being very good about the daily phone call, seasons of struggling with the daily phone call. Right now, to be honest, I'm only making a call about once a week. I need to up my game. Uh, by the way, this reminds me, the Apostle Paul, thank God for the Apostle Paul, he makes to me, which is this very charming admission, this aside in the book of Philippians, where he's writing to the church at Philippi about the glories of the gospel and our inheritance in Christ and what, who we are and where we're going and what we're doing. And then uh, right in the middle of it, in, uh, in chapter 3 of uh, Philippians, uh, starting in verse 12, he says this, Not that I have already obtained all of this or have already become perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ has taken hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining toward what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize, to win the prize 
which God has, for which God has called me heavy, heavenward in Christ. I'm not, I don't know, that, that new language kind of sticks. I still hear the King James, right? So, back to the daily phone call. This is how it goes. You got to make a daily phone call. And uh, so I got five guys who call me every day, and I meet with each guy once a week for an hour. And we go for a walk, and we talk. Now, when they call me, I don't answer the phone. This is the beautiful thing, especially for guys. I do not answer the phone. If they text me and say they need to talk, then I'll answer the phone. But that's not what this is about. They're calling to, to check in and tell me how they're doing, and they can tell that to my voicemail. I will listen to the voicemails. If I smell something really hinky or I'm concerned, I'll call them back. But typically, this is just a way for them, first of all, to do something spiritually healthy and tell somebody else where they are. It's a way for me to keep tabs on where they are so that when we do meet for our weekly meeting, I'm up to speed, right? So I ask them to call and leave a message. And I got a five-minute limit on my text message. On my, now most guys... They're done in two to three minutes. I got one guy who can do it in one minute, 30 seconds flat, right? This guy's got a military background. Yes, sir. I mean, he just nails it. Boom! I got another guy who always talks off the end of the tape. <laughs> but it doesn't matter. Now, this is not an unstructured phone call. We need direction. We need structure. We need... So my sponsor gave me this direction early on, and I've passed it on to other guys, and it's extremely helpful, extremely useful. He says, call me and tell me four things. Tell me these four things and tell them to me in this order. That's what he said. Now, I've said this to more guys than I can count. Tell me what you're feeling. Then tell me what you're thinking. Then tell me what you're doing. And then... Tell me what you're thinking of doing. Okay? A <laughs> uh, feeling, thinking, doing, thinking of doing. Now, I've come to learn that, that that order is very important. It's important that we start out with telling somebody else what we're feeling, especially for guys. Guys never open a conversation this way, do we? Just naturally? You know, how you feeling? Feeling good. <laughs> right? But... We seldom say, you know, I'm just, I'm feeling afraid today, and I don't know why, right? We don't want to start with feelings. We want to start with something outside us, or we want to start with what we're doing, or maybe what we're thinking. We don't want to start with feelings. Most guys live in our heads. Almost all addicts live in their heads. I would say all addicts live in their heads. You have to, in order, in order for the addiction to thrive, you just kind of got to live here. Now, all of us, I, try, I spent years doing irrational things for non-rational reasons, trying to solve the problem by rational means, because I thought I could think my way out of my addiction. Jesus made it plain that a person's life does not consist of what he thinks or what he does. Man's life proceeds from his heart. It's from in here. And emotions are the language of the heart. Most of us addicts at least, and an awful lot of guys, have lost that language. So we don't know what we're thinking. We don't know what we're feeling. That's what I told my sponsor. You know, he would say, write what you feel. And I would say, I, I don't know what I feel. One point he said, write what you think you might feel if you weren't such a freaking nice guy. Right? <laughs> right? 
Okay, that, that, that I could do. It was an exercise in fiction. Turns out I write really good fiction. Okay. Now, if I've lost touch with my heart, if I've lost the language of my heart, if I don't pay attention to what I feel, my emotions are going to drive me continually to do things that I don't understand. I'm going to step off cliffs I never even saw coming. I'm going to be vulnerable in ways I don't know I'm vulnerable. The biggest clue to what I'm going to do next is how I'm feeling. So I need to stop, monitor, what do I feel? Tell somebody else. My first sponsor made it real easy for me. He said, look, it's simple. You're always feeling something. Until you're dead, you're always feeling something. He said, now, there's an awful lot of feelings. There's this big spectrum of feelings. But we could say that they all fall into four major families. Mad, sad, glad, and afraid. So at any time, any given time, you're either some version of mad, or some version of sad, or some version of glad, or some version of afraid. I've heard therapists give us six or seven. There are different ways to break it down, but this was helpful for me. Four, that was about it. He said, imagine that you're in a room, four corners. You have to pick a corner, mad, sad, glad, or afraid. Pick a corner, talk to me for 20 seconds. That's huge. Sometimes it was not until I made the phone call that I even realized what I was feeling. So it's important that we start with feeling and share that with somebody else. So, tell me what you feel, what you're, what you're feeling. Now tell me what you're thinking. This is important. Um, we, you know, we're not called to amputate our heads. God gave us a brain for a reason. Thinking has its place. But it's a secondary place, and we all tend to think too highly of our own cognitive abilities. My best thinking, that's a common saying in 12-step. You know, my, my best thinking got me here, right? My problem with my thinking is that if I'm not checking my thinking with somebody else, I can very quickly lose sight of the horizon. And I can start to imagine that the craziest things are true. I build these logical scaffolds to nowhere that support my insane decisions. Sometimes all it takes is verbalizing what I'm thinking to wake me up to how crazy it is. Sometimes I'll be partway through des describing, you know, I'll, I'll be halfway down, I'll go, well, that's crazy, <laughs> right? Or sometimes he'll call me back and go, you know that's crazy, right? Or sometimes he'll call me back and say, you know, I think you're onto something. I've checked my thinking with somebody else. So tell me what you're feeling, tell me what you're thinking, now tell me what you're doing. Here's why that's important. I don't know about you, but I have an almost limitless capacity for um, for, uh, uh, yeah, for, uh, <laughs> yeah, for remembering, yeah. I do not have a limitless memory. Yeah, yeah. For covert activity. That's the phrase I was looking for. Covert activity. I have the ability to walk in one direction while talking in the other. And in fact, if I look back over my slips, my final words before going over the edge were usually, hey, I'm fine, right? But if I had been telling somebody what I was doing, and if somebody had been paying attention, they would know that I'm in trouble. So I need to be able to tell somebody else what I'm doing. 
And finally, I need to tell somebody else what I'm thinking of doing. By that, all I mean is, what is it that that crazy voice in the back of my head is telling me to do today? Do you know that voice? I mean, it's insane. You stop and think, you know how nuts it is. And it seems nuts right up until that last moment when just in exhaustion or frustration or fear or fatigue, somehow, just in that vulnerable moment, you just, okay, and you do it, right? It's that voice that says, you know, for example, you know, it says, uh, you should take that good look, you know, that, that cute coworker to lunch even though you're married, even though he or she's in a vulnerable place, and you are too. And, but that would be a good idea. And, and just plug in whatever your weakness is, you know? You know if you've got a gambling problem, it's the voice that says, next year's board meeting needs to be in Vegas, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's the one. Now, if I don't share that, with somebody else. It's just going to sit there. It's very, that voice is very patient and very insistent, and it will wait for the opportune moment. And if nobody knows that voice but me, the odds are really good that someday, one day, I'm going to listen. I need to tell somebody else. And then that somebody else will check in occasionally. How's it going with that crazy idea? Ben, you know, this is um, what I'm giving you today is very. Um, practical nuts and bolts stuff, uh, to me it all falls under the category of self-care. It didn't feel that way to me early on. It felt like I was like putting myself on probation or something. You know, it kind of really sucked that I had to you know, check in with people. When was this going to be over? Uh, I've come to love this part of the relationship, although I still struggle with the phone call. I do, when I do get together, I, I work very hard with anybody to have as frank and open a conversation as I possibly can. Try to stay current on the page, on the phone. Let's kind of, let's walk in the light as he is in the light. And then try to stay right-sized. That means even though I have work at home waiting for me on my computer, there's a part of me, there's this voice in the back of my head that says, I've got to do that work today. No, I don't have to do that work today. I have to rest today. It's good for me to rest today. And I can still enjoy the day even though that work's not done. So I'll just close with this question. How are you doing on the self-care thing? Are you trying to, to beat yourself up into a better place? Shame your way out of shameful behavior? Are you trying to be your own savior and pay for your own sins? Have you put yourself in solitary because you don't think you're worthy of relationships? Are you allowing shame to drive you from the gospel? Or are you willing today to accept the unqualified, unconditioned love of a savior, or as the uh, writer of the Hebrews says, Hebrews chapter 12, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. He took the shame for us and bids us not shame ourselves or shame each other. I really do hope that as we talk about these practical things, that you can shut down whatever shameful script tends to get activated in your own brain. 
And um, just enjoy today, will you? The love of Abba, Father. The one who just is thrilled to see the prodigal come home. Who wants nothing more than for that performance-driven, legalistic one to come out of the field. Stop trying to earn it and just join the party. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Walking Lessons Podcast. We want to hear from you. Please email your comment or question about today's lesson to walkinglessons at gmail.com or join the Walking Lessons page on Facebook. We'll see you next week.